Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-357 of the Run Run Live podcast. I wrote most of this intro and outro and some of the bits sitting in the airport in San Jose waiting on a red-eye, on a red-eye flight back to the East Coast. And I don't mind sleeping on planes. I'm a good sleeper, but it was not a direct flight. And there actually wasn't very much sleep, and I'm a bit burnt out from a couple weeks of travel and some fairly emotionally challenging interactions. So, but I got a run in, a morning run. I just headed out from the hotel and followed the trolley tracks and the sidewalks up North First Street. And it was cold and rainy, something very rare in California. It's always sunny in California. And they welcomed the rain, but it messed people up. It caused extreme traffic problems. They're not used to it. And it was a bit surreal. You know, you're up in the morning, there's no sun, it's kind of misty and rainy, and and you run past PayPal's headquarters in the pre-dawn drizzle. So I just did it out and back, and it's it's cold for them in the 40s, and everyone is bundled up in down jackets and scarves, but it was more like an April day for me, and I was in shorts and a t-shirt. Today we're going to talk with Joe Hill, a friend of the show, who talks us through his hip resurfacing journey that ended, believe it or not, very well, but spoiler alert, I'm not going to tell you. This is a continuation of the Overcoming Serious Injuries series that we've been going through, and I have no agenda here. I'm perfectly fine (laughs) training away, no aches and pains, no more than usual, and I am unusually busy, so I'll apologize for being distracted if you hear that in my voice. I have been collecting questions for a Q&A show. Yeah, that's a that's a cheat, huh? That's an easy way for a show. Easy content getter. And I'm going to get Teresa to interview me, and that should be fun. So if you have any questions for me about anything, anything at all, send them over. In the first section, I've got a piece to share about how long your long run should be in your marathon training plan. 
In the second section, I'm going to share with you a verbal doodle I penned while sitting in Starbucks in San Jose. Hey, take it for what it is. It's my form of poetry. Sorry. Apologies in advance. As the saying goes, sometimes you're the bird and sometimes you're the windshield. (laughs) You figure out what that means. Two self-serving points before we progress. I am collecting for Team Hoyt for Boston for the Boston Marathon and would appreciate your support. A little bit from a lot of people makes a difference. Be kind. Help those who need it. The Crowd Rise link is in the show notes. It's crowdrise.com slash Team Hoyt Boston 2017 slash fundraiser slash Christopher Russell. No dashes, no hyphens, just all together like that. The second thing is that the podcast is ad-free and listener-supported. And I do this by offering a membership option. This isn't a job for me, it's a hobby, and your membership helps keep the lights on. In exchange, we put out some members-only content. So go to my website to sign up, www.runrunlive.com. All right. I watched a good movie last week. It's one of the new releases on Amazon Prime, and it's called Gleason. It's about Steve Gleason, an American football player famous for blocking a punt in the post-Katrina New Orleans Super Bowl. And he finds out he has ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And he documents, he sort of blogs the whole process. And this is the same disease Stephen Hawking's has. And most patients don't last more than three to five years. Hawking's has somehow managed to live to 73 with it. He's a wonder. And it's a terrible disease because it doesn't really affect your mind, but it wastes your body. And it's a heart-wrenching movie. And in my house, the girls usually fight over what to watch because they have differing taste. But this had a football in it, so my wife would watch it. And it had some neuroscience in it, so my daughter would watch it too. So I, it, not only was it a good movie, it was a, uh, a great compromise movie. So in the end, it's about struggle and courage. And that's life in a microcosm, right? We all have struggles and we all need courage. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Let's look at the question, how long should your long run be in your marathon training? And this is one of those great questions because the answer is it depends. Yeah, it depends on your weekly mileage. It depends on the fitness you're bringing into the training cycle. It depends on your race goal. Are you just looking to finish? Are you targeting an aggressive time goal? Are you looking to finish comfortably? It depends on your experience. It depends on your injury history. It depends on your ability to recover. It depends on your race pace goal and your training pace. It depends on your coach's philosophy. It depends on your psychology. It depends. Why is the long run such an emotional topic in the first place? The long run really defines marathon training. The long run is, especially to outsiders, the measuring stick and the manifestation of marathon training. It's those long runs that make people shake their heads and say, I don't even drive my car that far. 
The long run is an emotional high watermark in your training plan. It's a status thing. You get to casually post to social media that you just finished a 20-miler and you're going to take an ice bath. Leading up to those long runs, it stresses you out. Those long runs are like the white whales on your training plan, sticking out there and taunting you, keeping you awake at night in anticipation. What's the weather going to be like? Do you have enough fuel? What are you going to wear? What time of the morning are you going to start? You have to be careful the day before about what you do and what you eat. You lose most of that long run day getting ready or recovering. You ache from the effort for a couple days. And each one of these long runs is a big deal, a big achievement, an emotional and physical stepping stone in your progress towards your goal race. That's why we care about how long the long run should be. In the first running boom of the 1970s, somebody decided that 20 miles was the right number for the long run. And that number has been passed down through the generations as a given, a checklist item. Did you get a couple 20 milers in? Good, you're ready. Why did the old timers decide 20 miles was that magic number? For a couple reasons. First, at the time, the average marathoner was training and racing in a six to maybe eight minute mile pace range. And that 20 miles translated to a two and a half to three hour run, which is not a crazy number. And most of them were also peaking in the 50 to 70 miles per week range. And this put that 20 miler at 30 to 40% of weekly mileage, which again, is not a crazy number. And finally, the infamous marathon wall where the body runs out of glycogen, typically hit these runners around 20 miles into a race. And for these runners, 20 miles was a reasonable rule of thumb, and still is for runners that fit that description. But it's not the 1970s, and not all runners fit that description. Do you need 20 miles to run a marathon? No, it's an arbitrary number. I have had outstanding marathons with 16-mile long run. Understanding that the other elements of my training supported that race execution. I have had outstanding marathons where my long runs were 20, 22, 24, and 2 by 26. I've struggled in marathons with 30 and 50 mile long runs. (laughs) There is nothing sacred about the long run or about 20 miles. It depends on your training philosophy and what you're trying to accomplish. So, What's your race goal? What's your experience? Do you want to just finish the race or do you have a time goal in mind? There's a big difference in the training you'll need to qualify for Boston and the training you'll need to get to the finish line. And depending on your race goal, your training will be different. As far as the long run is concerned, a first-time marathoner just looking to finish may end up running longer long runs just for the confidence. Each successive long run is probably the longest time or distance they have run in their lives, and it's a confidence boost as they progress through their training. A more experienced athlete might be better served using some of that long run time and energy to work on some other aspects of training that impact their ability to race. The point being that they are not training for a long, slow race. They are training to hold a hard effort well past their comfort zone, and you tend to see more things like 10 to 12-mile tempo runs or step-up runs to practice this race-specific effort. 
If you're trying to achieve a time, a long slow run is a very non-specific training activity, and you may be better off spending that time and effort in training activities that are more closely aligned with your goals. The other goal of the long run is to teach your body how to get beyond the wall and use the long run to practice and become comfortable with your fueling and racing strategies. In some of the original marathon training plans, the long run was also a form of base building. Do you have a base aerobic fitness going in? Current plans will typically have you build that base as a first phase of your training before you enter a race-specific training phase. And this, again, takes some of the emphasis off the long runs. Some of the current plans focus on cumulative stress instead of one long run. The actual long runs are shorter, but they simulate the cumulative stress of racing a marathon by designing a number of hard workouts that week that lead into a shorter long run. The theory is that you still get the stress benefits of a long run by closing on tired legs, which is more race-specific, without the time on your feet. What's your weekly mileage? Weekly mileage is also important when thinking about how long your long run should be. The higher your normal weekly mileage is, the less shock to your system a long run is going to be. Most coaches will design a plan where the longest long runs are 30 to 40% of your weekly mileage. And this is for injury prevention. If you're only logging 25 miles a week, throwing down a 20-mile run is going to almost double your weekly mileage. And that kind of stress will create injuries. And what's your injury history? How fast do you recover as an athlete? If you have a history of injury, especially if those injuries tend to occur towards the end of a training campaign, lots of longer long runs may be a mistake for you. If you've been keeping a log of any type, you can look at where these injuries happen and see if you correlate that to the mileage in the long runs. Interestingly enough, the overuse injury may not happen during the long run. It may not manifest for a couple days. That's what I find. You may not even notice it during or after the long run, but it turns into something a few days later. You also have to consider what your fitness level is and how fast you recover. If you've got a good base and no injuries, you stand a better chance of weathering that long run stress. Recovery also tends to be specific to the individual. I know some ultra runners who can do incredible distance week after week with no ill effects. It's just how they're designed and the efficiency of their running. I used to use the long run as a bit of a hammer when I was younger to get into race shape faster, like cramming for a test. I could do that long effort and recover from it to yield a benefit of big fitness boost. I don't recover as quickly now, and it takes a couple weeks to get that pop back in my legs, so I can't do that anymore. Your running economy and your efficiency also makes a big difference. Small problems with your form or small weaknesses in your mechanics tend to get amplified when you go long, especially when you start to fatigue. My coach (laughs) and many of the heart rate-based coaches, they do the long run by time instead of distance. So he'll give me a number like three hours and maybe a maximum of three hours and a half which for me is going to end up being somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 miles, ironically enough. There's a new challenge now that the runners from that first 
running boom never even considered. There's a new generation of runner that is much further back in the pack that didn't used to exist. So you have folks training for five or six hour marathons. If you do the math on the training pace, a 20 mile run might be a five hour investment. And that's an enormous amount of time on your feet. And frankly, I don't have an appreciation for that. I did pace a friend to a six-plus-hour marathon once, and all I can say is that my feet were pretty sore. Spending that much time in your feet tends to produce overuse injuries. I know Galloway has his runners do over-mileage for these plans, and I think he usually has them do a long run of like 28 miles, which is mind-boggling to me because it will take some of these runners seven to eight hours. That's not a long run. That's a short vacation. He is able to do this because the plans are very long and very incremental, 26, 28 weeks. The intensity level is very low, and the ramp-up time is incrementally slow. So what's the right answer? There's no universal answer to this question. As we said in the introduction, it depends. As a general rule of thumb... Fitter, more experienced athletes will be able to handle longer runs as part of their training, but may actually choose to focus that energy on other training aspects that are more race-specific. Beginners and intermediate runners may end up with the traditional two or three 20-mile runs with that rule of thumb in their plan, and that will be enough to give them a fighting chance of going the distance. And the back of the Packers may want to consult Galloway or, or one of the longer duration plans. The way I look at it is that I'm training for a 20-mile run with a 10K race at the end. And I'm trying to get to that 20-mile mark with my systems intact and my legs still under me so I can close that last 10K. That requires a special mix of endurance and race-specific fitness and execution. That balanced effort is my unicorn, (laughs) and that's what I designed my training for. And clearly, there's no right answer for every runner. How long your long run is, it's going to be up to you, your coach, your training plan, your goals. Lay all the factors out as you're putting your plan together. Look at it holistically, and don't be afraid to experiment. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Joe. Yes, hey, Chris. I'm doing this sort of series on people who have had these major injuries, I guess you might call them, or sideways things in their running, and just how you came back from it and just some of the mechanics of it. So when do you give me the 200 words on what your situation is? Sure. The uh, 200 words or less, anyhow. I'm Joe Hill. I live outside of Pittsburgh, and I kind of has started the competitive running thing a, a bit late. I'm 58. I ran my first marathon at 51, uh, the Pittsburgh Marathon. And uh, the reasons for that are essentially I was looking for another competitive phase of my life. But in any event, it was going along okay. And I noticed some things that were at first, I just figured it was a matter of me not stretching enough and doing the things that I needed to do. Basically, uh, on my right leg, I was noticing things like hamstring and uh, some tightness, primarily hamstring, and uh, it didn't seem to be bothering me when I was running. 
However, once I finished, uh, it would grab, it would tighten up quite a bit. And this probably happened maybe not on the first marathon, but probably about the third or so. I, I ran eight over a period of about four years. And then at some point, I noticed some shin pain. This was a few weeks before my first Boston. At that point, I still was thinking I had a running injury. Now, I should have recognized that anything that I ever had was happening on the same side, on the right side. However, it yeah. was never hip. So I limped my way through Boston and then figured I'd stop running for a while and it would fix itself. Well, it didn't. And then when I finally, a, a few months later, decided to go get it checked out, they took some x-rays and, and immediately it was obvious, at least obvious to the, the doctor, that it was osteoarthritis on my right hip. And it was practically bone on bone at that point. So that explained a lot of things. So let me ask you this. What kind of mileage were you putting in? You said you got started late, but what was your training like? In that last year, the last year before I ran Boston, I, I ran uh, 2,500 miles in that year. So a couple hundred miles a month. I was roughly 40 miles a week. I wasn't that all along. I think uh, I worked my way up to that. But I thought that it was a result of increasing the mileage. I really did. And uh, I thought that backing it off would work. And ultimately, as I talked to different surgeons and they evaluated the x-rays, and they all pretty much said the same thing. And, of course, you're looking for a reason because arthritis, I never considered, even in my mid-50s, I didn't consider that arthritis was going to be an issue. It wasn't one throughout my life. And you expect to run into it sooner or later, but more like 60s and 70s is more typical. I said, what was it that caused this? And of course, it wasn't the mileage and it wasn't a lack of stretching. It simply was the shape of my femoral head, basically the ball and socket fitting. So I've had the same conversation with other people, right? So there's this sort of genetic trait that you're born with where you're your hips are a ball and socket. It's an extremely strong, robust joint. It's hard to mess that joint up because it's, it's right. basically stronger than every other joint in your leg. So usually, right. even if your hip is screwed up, your knee will go first or your ankle or something else because the hip is so strong with that ball and socket. But what happens is you can be born with a ball that isn't round. You know, it's just a little bit, as they say, aspherical. And I've had this conversation right. with other folks as well. So, Cam you know, shape pretty, is what they call it. Yeah, pretty high mileage guy, and you're thinking, what did I do to make this go wrong, right? And you're racing hard on it, and you're saying, though, it didn't manifest in the hip, because the other guys I've talked to, it manifested as hip pain. Yeah, not mine. It was only after everything else went away, and I was doing some stretches to try to figure out some range of motion things, and then I noticed that my range of motion was way less on that hip than it was on anything else. So before you started running later in life, had you done any other sort of heavy uh, athletics with, with your legs? Were you doing anything else? Yeah, I had run. I misspoke a little bit. I had been running. I was a runner in high school, a, a middle distance guy and cross country guy of just yeah. average, average talent. And then during the time after college in the Navy and teaching and coaching through several years, I ran not as consistently as I do now, but generally three or four times a week sure. on my own. I wasn't doing competitive stuff. Basically, it right. was a weight management type thing. And so put on some miles, but nothing like what I had done after starting the marathoning. Noting that I had never had any problems before, 
and then I suddenly had them, and that was the case. Now, what every what at least my the surgeon that I ended up picking he said you were going to get this anyhow, whether you ran right. as much as you've run or not. He said it might right. not have happened for another five or ten years, but you would right. have gotten this anyways. Right, and that's what this aspherical joint. That's what uh, I've heard as well is that you may have hastened its arrival with your that's volume right. and your intensity. But at some point, it was going to rear its ugly head because it just the the two pieces don't fit together yeah. correctly. Yeah, and it's just over yeah. over time because it's not perfectly shaped like a billiard ball. Over time, it just wears that cartilage away, and that's what happened. It manifests itself. What happens before it, as it's wearing away, you make imperceptible changes to your gait, walking, running, what have you. And and that's where the other pains come from, adjusting to avoid the pain, even though you're not really conscious of what you're doing. It's just the body's doing it for you. Right, right. So by running with a little hitch, you're actually, that's your knee and shin and all that other stuff. Yeah, I get it. That's right. Now, the thing with this particular injury, this aspherical joint, when you go in with any kind of hip injury or hip arthritis, the medical establishment right now, don't really mean to say that in a sinister way, but what they want to do is they want to give you a new hip, right? Because they do 10 of those a day and they can whip that titanium hip right in there. So how do you get around that and go for this other procedure? Well, I had researched both. Of course, Google's a wonderful thing, and uh, except when you use it to diagnose yourself. But I had used that to do some research, and I thought, well, what is it that I want? One, I want the like to make the pain go away. And and it may not be possible, but if possible, I'd like to get back to some level of running, even if it's not marathons anymore. But I'd like to do that. If I had to, I could bike and do some other things. But boy, I'd really rather continue with running if it's feasible. So it was with that intent that I started my research. And as I was going through it, essentially, there, there are two ways to go. And the one way is that 90, 95% of people go is the total hip replacement. And that's very common, and they're very good at it now. They can even do the uh, an anterior incision that supposedly takes less time to heal because it's a smaller incision. And you can do everything on that hip that you can do with the other one, except for high impact activity. So if you want to run, or if you're a policeman, or you're a fireman, something else that requires you jumping from buildings and things like that, then the total hip replacement is not as sturdy as the other one. It seems if it's fairly controversial, there there's some parts of the country where you are in New England, you would have a hard time finding a, uh, a surgeon that thinks that's a good idea. And do the hip resurfacing, that is. Less yeah, of them do yeah, it. Yeah. Many less of them do it. Uh, a small percentage of them do it. And the ones that do it, there's not as long of a track record. There is some risk. There's risk with any surgery, of course. But the standard total hip replacement, that's been around for quite a long time. This one, right. they're just starting to get around to the, I think it's probably right. between so, 20 and 30 years. Right. So the guy, I know a lot of guys who have had this, not a lot, but a handful of guys who've had this hip replacement, they're my age or older. And typically it's because they were in some sort of high impact sport, uh, either younger or during a life like soccer or hockey, where they're doing a lot of side to side motions and they wore that hip joint out. 
And what they say is, the doctor says, you can run on this, you can play hockey on this, but it's only, if you do that, it's only going to be good for two years or three years and you're going to have to get another one, right? And the mechanics of that is they're basically breaking the end of your femur off, the part with the ball on it, and they're stuffing a titanium, a new one that ends sort of in a lawn spike down inside that bone, and eventually the bone heals around that new piece of titanium and that becomes your new hip right there right that's so that's, right. Uh, that's, a, that's exactly right and the weak part the part that they worry about is that where it's spiked into the thigh bone basically that with too much impact over time that can come loose and if it does there is a uh, revision surgery but it's very invasive it's not something that you want to rush towards that's why they tell you with that to avoid the high impact. Right, right. That being said, I know guys who have that who basically do what they used to do before. Maybe right. not at the same level, but they're a little bit older too, so it seems to even out. So I think they err on the caution there. But there's this different technique now, which is if you have this specific thing, which is this aspherical ball, they can make it round, right? But they also yeah. there's some um, there's some injection into the joint of there's some still some material going on there. They're adding material there. So tell me how there, that works. There is. The adding of the, the material, uh, as far as injection, I'm not sure that I had that or if I, if I did. I, I don't understand it well enough. But the procedure that I got, how it differs from the total hip replacement is instead of chopping off the femoral head in a few inches of the femur, they leave that in place. And the surgeon goes in and he manipulates that and, and basically rounds off, shaves off the, your femoral head to smooth it out. And after he does that, he puts a thin metal cup on it, which has right. like a small spike in the middle of it. And eventually bone grows to that. Sometimes they're cemented, sometimes they're not. The right. socket part, the acetabulum, is essentially the same on both, although with the resurfacing, it's always metal. With total hip replacement, it could be metal, it could be some sort of uh, hard plastic, or it could be something else. But the thing that is different about the total hip is you leave a lot more bone there, but you also have metal on metal, which at some point, actually, it, it prolongs the life of that because it's not going to wear away quite as quick. But there is the potential that it could cause some problems with metal ions uh, running through your bloodstream and things like that. So that's one of the risks of it. Now, where that could go long term, nobody really knows. Right. So instead of chopping that ball off, they're smoothing it out. They're covering it with metal. And then they're also putting some metal, like a metal coating, into the socket as well. That's right. That's right, in, in yeah, both places. Right. And that's also the case with the total hip. They do the same thing with the socket. Now, now, my understanding is that there's a big difference in recovery as well, where with the total hip replacement, you're out of there pretty quickly, and you're back to sort of normal function pretty quickly, a month or two. But with the resurfacing, my understanding is they make you take it super easy and make sure that grafted uh, covering of the ball is firmly attached to your body or, or healed over. Uh, before they let you start doing anything, right? So what's the time frame for you to get back to, to run it? The time frame isn't as long as you're led to believe. And I think the time frame is wildly different depending on the individual 
patient and what kind of shape they're in going in and, and that kind of thing. One of the risks of the resurfacing is you're most at risk for the bone fracture of the femoral head during the first month or two after surgery. So particularly for the first 30 days, you have to be careful. Now, you leave the hospital the same time anybody else does. Uh, for me, it was two days. So that part didn't make any difference. I had a much longer incision. I don't know that that made any difference. It's about six inches down the side. So those, I didn't notice that being a real issue. I was expecting it to be. But as it turned out, in my experience, it, it was. Other people may have different experiences. But I thought that after the first month, you're clear to pick it up a little bit. My surgeon says uh, after three months, you can do basically whatever you want. Some are more conservative right. and say six months, some say a year. To me, I started running at about five months. I would have started earlier, except it was winter, and I thought that wasn't the greatest time to start. And I probably started a little bit too soon. Not again. The, the hip was never a problem. It's just uh, as my body was realigning to the new hip, uh, it created some other problems initially, some knee problems and things that, that went away in time. So did they put you through a couple months of therapy for that to make sure the movement's good? You get the range of motion? Uh, six weeks three times a week for six weeks. And that seemed to be just about right, Chris. I think I could have gone longer, but I might have reached diminishing returns at that point. But I think I needed every bit of the six weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's not something you ought to rush. So you're back in the saddle now, though, right? How long has it been? It was a year in late October that I had the surgery. So figure 14 months out. And uh, I had run, I guess, in April... So six, seven months after, I had run a, a half marathon, and I just decided to do it by heart rate. been listening to your podcast, so I had, had an idea what to do, and I just thought, well, I'm going to keep my heart rate under a certain amount, and I'm, I'm turning off the, the data for or the, the screens for the pace and things like that. And it, was, it turns out I ran it in about two hours, and a little bit of knee pain late. So I took another month off. And then maybe in August of this past year, I ran a hot 10-miler. This time, I had been running regularly since June, maybe 150, 175 miles a month. None of it hard. No speed work, yeah. no tempo work, none of it hard. And it seemed to be going okay. What I really noticed, Chris, was not so much the hip, it's just I was out of shape for right. not having, right. yeah. having done anything yeah. in a couple of years. And then I had ran a 10K a little bit faster than I was expecting. And for somebody with a Garmin and somebody that pays attention to pace, you shouldn't get caught up in that. But it turns out I was just talking to somebody as I was running. And then after a couple of miles, I said, whoa, that's a little faster than I thought it was going to be. And I kind of feel okay. So I had really figured uh, qualifying for Boston, that might not ever happen again. Prior to this, I thought, if it does, great. I would like at least one shot at it where I'm not limping my way through it, just to see what I can do on that course. But I felt like that was probably a year away. Then when I ran this 10K, I thought, huh, maybe not. Maybe it's a little bit closer. It's probably not yet. So I had already scheduled to run the Army 10-miler in D.C., and I'd run that a few times and ran that 
to within like four seconds of my best time on that. So this was about a month later. And then uh, in the meantime, I had thought, okay, well, I, I think I'm all right. I had also applied for the JFK 50 miler. I don't know if you've done that one, Chris, or you, I'm sure you've no, heard I of haven't. it. I'm sure. Yeah, so, yeah, I know it. So I technically didn't meet the prerequisite. I wasn't sure that I was going to get in, but I applied anyhow. And in the comments, I told them why I hadn't run a marathon in the last two calendar years. And But this is what I had done before, and this is what I'm doing now. And I thought, well, either they'll cash my check or they won't. And if I don't get in, that that's fine. So in the meantime, I hadn't heard anything. There's a little rail trail out and back marathon near me that I had run before, and I thought, that wouldn't be a bad one to do. I don't know that I necessarily can qualify, but I think I'll give that a shot, and I'll hold on to the pace as long as I can. What was that one? That's called the uh, Indiana-Pennsylvania Veterans Marathon. So that was, oh, November 9th or so. Right. Maybe November November 6th, I think. So anyhow, I instantly got into that. I just signed up online. Well, don't you know, the next day I get my acceptance for the JFK 50. <laughs> I thought, ah, so I'm going to run a marathon. I'm scheduled now for a marathon, an ultra, which I've never run any kind of ultra before, not one step beyond 26.2, and that's 13 days later. <clears throat> that's not how I would have mapped it out, but there's still a strategy. And I, I thought, well, I think giving Boston a shot is what I want to do first. And then if yeah, at some so point... It, it sounds like in your recovery, um, without knowing it, you inadvertently were doing a bunch of base training, which is you know, <laughs> that's, low, that's, low heart rate, building that mitochondria like we recommend for base training. Right. So because you were injured, you were actually running a Lidgard-style training plan, and you found that uh, sort of deeper well of fitness when you showed up at this uh, marathon. Right, and that was one of those where, again, the lack of speed and tempo thing, you really don't know what you're going to be able to do. And uh, so the expectations weren't that high, except I did set a pace for, uh, I figured I would shoot for somewhere between 330 and 335. My standard is the same as yours. It's 340, and I figured between 5 and 10 minutes better than that would be safe if I did it. I would be reasonably sure getting in. And that particular day, it just, everything clicked, and it was unexpected, but I ended up at 326 and change. And uh, so that was a PR by a, a minute and a half. But going in there, though, the plan to me, Chris, was you're either, sometimes run more marathons than I have. That was my ninth. Sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't. And uh, I felt like what I would do because of the JFK 50 was, I was going to ignore that at first. Uh, Just ignore that I was going to do that two weeks later, go for a BQ. And if it looked like that on that day, it wasn't going to happen, just slow down and treat it like a training run. And so it did happen. So then, of course, all along, there was really no expectation with time with JFK. So the goal there was just see if I can finish it. And ultimately, that's what I did. Again, uh, so that's, that's a good hero's journey story, right? You had the <laughs> the challenges, you overcame them, came back, and was uh, triumphant there at the end, right? So, so was, you qualified pretty, for 2018, then? It's 2018, right? Right. Yeah. So, all right. So, I think that 
Yeah, and the JFK thing was cool. I had no knowledge, no real experience on rocky and rugged trails, which uh, the first, that all happens in the first 15 miles. And then after that, it's, you can run the rest of it. But it was cool. And quite frankly, no real, other than my feet being blistered up, no real price to pay for it. At least not now. We're only a year out. You can't declare victory and know how things are going to be five years or 10 years from now. But at least early on, I'm happy with my decision and what way I went. Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds like it worked out for you really well. I have a friend, uh, my buddy Frank, who has gone through the same procedure and he's just in his comeback right now. Actually, this weekend is the Terry 16 miler. I think he's going to run that. So uh, it, I'll pass this along to him as well. After a couple of times, you can tell him he won't even think about his hip anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, he used to go sub three back in the old days uh, when we were racing Boston. So he's. Uh, wow. I think he'll he'll be fine. He's not carrying a lot yep. of weight around. That helps. Um, right. So I'm going to move you through the exit here. Anything that you learned from this uh, emotionally or physically? Yeah, there there were a few things, and most of it, I think, Chris, I met with. Uh, three surgeons. Each had had a slightly different specialty. And the first one that I met is the one who did resurfacing. But he really didn't try to talk me into that because he did the other one as well. And he explained both of them to me. And and I said, well, why would I pick one over the other? And he said, only if you really want to run. So then the last one that I met was a pretty accomplished surgeon also who had only did the total hip replacement, but did the minimally invasive. So I went in there with the idea, I wanted him to talk me out of this, this one, essentially. And I wanted to see if he could give me anything that I didn't already know, that I hadn't already been researched and questions that I had answered. And ultimately, the answer was, for me, in that case, it was no, I, I wasn't talked out of it. Somebody else, though, might have been talked out of it. So I think that my thing was I'd researched it enough. This wasn't a shooting from the hip thing. And ultimately, Uh did I make the right decision? It looks like it for me. It may not be for everybody. And I'm glad that one of the things that I thought early on was, I'll get back to running at some level, but I won't be as good. Now, again, starting late, I probably missed my running prime, which is fine. But it really has allowed me to uh, to exceed expectations. And right now what I have to do is rein myself back that I don't get too fired up, that I'm able right. to run faster and not be hurt and things like that. But So there is a perspective, and I know what it feels like to not be able to do it, and I'm really, really grateful to have a, a second opportunity at it. Right. Yeah, good attitude. And I think that's one of the things you learn uh, with severe injuries. But injuries, one of the things you learn with severe injuries is you get a certain perspective on just how lucky you are to be able to go out on a nice day and run. And it really right, has no nothing to do with the goals. So, yep. all right, all right, man, I'm going to let you go. And uh, thank you for the, the update on the, the hip replacement. And uh, we'll chat, all right? Okay, thank you, Chris. All right, cheers. All right, bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. So this is the piece. <laughs> this is the uh, the mental doodle I wrote sitting in a Starbucks in San Jose. And uh, take it for what it is. It's I called it laptops and caffeine. The Starbucks is in San Jose, close to the buildings that house such icons of the new economy as PayPal 
and eBay. The floor is a bit grimy. It is probably due to the rain. It never rains in California, and the floor probably has no experience with grime. It is, this Starbucks, understaffed. One young lady smiling falsely on register, and one young man cranking out fancy caffeinated drinks on bar. No breaks for them. The line ebbs and flows with the tide of customers out towards the door. Laptops glow on wooden tables. They are the source of business plans and pitch decks, no doubt. Young, eager technologists who have flocked in from all over the world to run headlong and bright-eyed into a full tsunami of venture capital. Dreams of Teslas and ringside UFC seats dancing in their heads. It's a different crowd. On the other side of the continent, maybe in Concord, Massachusetts, in doppelganger Starbucks with the same decor and a similar harried staff, the clientele is different. Harried housewives hunched to writing their novels after dropping their two perfect children off at gymnastics. Prep school professors work on radicalizing the youth of the old rich with leftist lesson plans. Grad students push through piles of academic work despite the lack of sleep. That's the East Coast. Here on the West Coast, it's different. It's a young, earnest crowd. It's a predominantly Asian crowd. The accents are California, though, not Delhi or Singapore. They're cloaked in flannel shirts and T-shirts and jeans with thicker coats bundled against the unbearable near 40-degree weather. What would be a fine April day in Boston is a cataclysmic traffic event in Silicon Valley. Something reminds me somehow of the great Gatsby. This dance of power and money and fear with technology being the latest commodity to be danced about. I suppose it's mostly morally cleaner than slaves and less destructive than bootleg liquor. And at the next table, an off-site meeting. The conversations lilt with well-worn syllables, term sheets, action items, and issue lists. The lingua universal of capital and motion, in motion like thousands of little fish frantically paddling in a garden pond. Thumbing smartphone screens for the latest updates, they fiddle at them like the rosary beads of a penitent Irish grandmother. Bowing to their mecca before they rise to leave, shouldering backpacks, marching back to headquarters and their destiny. It is a place with a sense of destiny, maybe even manifest. A painfully skinny man sips ironically at a bottle of vitamin water. I wonder what his story is. A constant parade of pedestrians sneaks in the door and through to the restroom, Starbucks being the hopeful repository of so much nervous urine. In Roman baths, the Starbucks of their time, the urine was used to tan hides with. I wonder if there's an app for that. Generations are born and bred on the innovation culture, it's a great chaos of striving, of new things, of things only imagined in the fevered dreams of entrepreneurs. Haunted and driven, they flock here like so many demented swallows to find some peace, to lose themselves, to burn themselves, to be immolated in the startup. It's a drug. It's a stout veil to be pulled over reality, to give purpose to the purposeless, to give 
an infinite horizon to the dreams of the faithful. It's a purposeful incubation of a kind of madness. Like any other drug or obsession, it consumes. Out the other end of the whirlpool are spat youthful millionaires. The trip and the coin bags, justifying whatever jaded view of the world they happen to find in their pockets at the end. But is not progress and truth and real knowledge found at the boundaries, at the edges? And isn't it found by those that are driven and unafraid and, yes, a bit demented? Isn't this the virus of seeking that has driven the human race always forward? This Starbucks is a microcosm of the frontier, of lunar bases and far-reach galaxies seeded with explorers, far from the savannah of our ancient trees. It is a song of hope they sing, not so much a song of triumph as it is a song of unbridled and unabashed striving, a refreshingly unbounded hopefulness to carve something from the nothingness with only the sharp tools of their mind and the hot white fire of their passions. We need a place like this to foster these people, this race of Don Quixotes tilting at their windmills in the clouds. It is a wonderful blessing to be able to draw the tilting and wild-eyed to our bosom and let them spin their webs of fanciful places. They are the Alice in the Wonderland and the Dorothy in the Oz, a testing ground where imagination can run wild and take form and fly. How dry a crusty place it would be without our dreamers, our workers for a dream. Jazz trickles down from speakers high in the corners of the store, improvisation within the form, a music with no beginning, no middle, no end, tickling the sky with its improvisation, a fitting metaphor for the glow of laptops. And the sun sets on a rainy San Jose day. Thousands of entrepreneurs are kept awake by their dreams, like gossamer fishes just out of reach in clear, fast-flowing streams. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Yes, my friends who have slept sitting up between two strangers all the way across the country and to the end of episode 4-357 of the Run Run Live podcast. How about Joe, huh? New hip and he runs a PR and gets a BQ. See? See, that's the hero's journey, right? The learning here is that you don't have to train. Just get new parts. (laughs) <laughs> I wonder how many years before sports are going to have to make a call on how much artificial augmentation, how much hardware you get to have in your body before you get disqualified or at least have a different standard or a different class for augmented humans. It's a science fiction world out there, my friends. And I don't think, you know, in my own training, I don't think I'm going to race too much until Boston this year. I'm a bit tired of these races. I've been doing them for 20 years, and they're all getting pricey as well. We'll see. I might get the urge to run eastern states or stews, but I'm going to skip dairy this weekend and just do my own long run. I don't have any big plans for summer yet either. I just finished reading Thoreau's The Main Woods, and I'm thinking about grabbing Teresa and making her climb Katahdin with me. It sounds like a It's still pretty wild up there on the other side of Bangor, and I do love the woods. I'll write a review of this book, The Main Woods, at some point in the next week or so. It was much more readable, narrative-wise, than Cape Cod or Walden. And I might circle back to Walden, but I think I need to change genres and work some business reading in now. 
With travel, the last couple of weeks, I have fallen off the good eating habits train, but I'll get back on and I'll do what I can. Life is life and you have to adjust to circumstance. With Boston only 90 days away, my training will start getting more intense and more race specific, longer runs and more tempo work, less easy base building. Your friend Buddy, the old wonder dog, he's doing great. I took him for a run in the woods this week, and he loved it. 20 minutes in the cold and slush, his kind of weather. And he's now the last of his cadre in the neighborhood. The last of his class, the black lab next door, who taught him how to swim, moved on to the great dog park in the sky after the holidays. But Buddy, he's still up and reasonably mobile for a goofy old man. He's doing okay. I was going to end this show by sharing some thoughts on the Hollywood blacklist. Uh, <laughs> I'm listening to a history of it right now, so it's top of my mind. And uh, some of the parallels are fascinating. But it wasn't the most positive thing, so I'll push it to the members' feed and avoid the hate mail. Instead, let's think about Joe's journey and Steve Gleason and all the others like them. We all have low points and challenges in our lives. And when you're inside them, you can't even imagine things getting better. You get overwhelmed by hopelessness and despair. And invariably, when I look back at the really challenging times in my life, whether they be in my career or in my training, they were a gift. They caused me to stand up and take charge of my story. They caused me to take leaps of faith and make things happen. The lower the low point, the bigger the challenge, the more you learn from it, and the bigger the bounce. You come out the other side forged in the heat of that furnace. You become much stronger and a much more resilient person. But only if you're willing to try to adapt, to learn, to get over yourself and move. Challenges become meaningful when you give them meaning. Low points become valuable when you wring the value from them. And as for you, keep your heads up and your eyes open and watch out for the sharp rocks and hanging branches of life and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him I gotta go uh, let the dog in. Hold on a second. He's uh, his timing is impeccable, isn't it? It's impeccable. He, does he hear the microphone button turn on or something? <clears throat> hey, you! Do you hate podcasting? Do you hate podcasting as much as you hate meditation and yoga? Go lay down. Go lay down. Did you see the red light? Recording. Quiet in the studio. (laughs) Good boy. Yeah. Go lay down. Go lay down. Go do it now so we don't hear your toenails click clacking on the floor. Oh, dog.